We're going to talk about some things that might be posing a risk to your organization, underreported crypto theft vulnerabilities that you should be concerned about, 91 ransomware attacks, 1 billion person data breach. Welcome to the State of Cybercrime podcast. I'm your host, Matt Radelak from Veronis. The following podcast has been adapted from a live show. Check out our YouTube channel for the full video and sign up on our website to be notified of upcoming live events. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of State of Cybercrime. How's it going, Matt? Hey, yeah, I'm doing How outstanding. Where's everybody talking to us and viewing us from today? I'm at home in, in Maryland. What about you, David? I am at home in Connecticut. And Devere? I'm from sunny Tel Aviv in Israel. Awesome. Awesome. I hope some of our audience members chime in and let us know where they're watching the show from today. We got some Kentucky, some Kansas City, some North Carolina. We got somebody from Liverpool. Shout out to our friends across the pond. Got another Marylander. We're excited. There's some things that have been catching the world by storm, all the pun intended, that we're definitely going to cover on the show today. And let's crack right into it. So we're going to go through our usual segments. We'll start with, is there any good news? We'll jump on the highway to the danger zone. We'll talk about a handful of vulnerable vulnerabilities. And like always at the end, We'll save time for Q&A to interact with you, our audience. After all, the show is made possible by you. We really appreciate your attendance today and all your engagement. So let's get started with, is there any good news? Is there any good news, Matt? There always is some good news. In cybersecurity, everybody likes to talk about doom and gloom and this meek outlook that we have for the world. But there's always something good to say, whether it's another hacking forum getting busted, which maybe I'm hinting at our next segment, or some ransomware or cyber criminal getting taken down. Uh, that's what we've got to talk about here. In fact, Operator, aka, and to make sure I'm pronouncing all these threat actor group names right, Nexum, Desktop Group, or Common Raven, is believed to have stolen somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to $30 million over the last four years in phishing, business email compromise style attacks on financial institutions and mobile banking apps across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Their main MO was infiltrating networks in order to siphon money out of the ATM networks that were operated by and connected to the institution. The arrest of this actor was made in Cote d'Ivoire during a joint operation between Interpol, Orange, the U.S. Secret Service, and Booz Allen Hamilton's Dark Labs, calling it Operation Nerve One. This one is another win for the good guys. Yeah, I think that arrest was made au bibliothèque as well. But uh, I thought it was interesting, the operator group, their MO was to stay in organizations for quite some time, probably a, a month to three months or so. And they would target the same company over and over again, mostly financial crime, if I have that right. Yeah, yeah. Going after, I think the ATM specifically, right? Like when an ATM makes a call to take an ACH from another bank account and try to siphon money out of that process with some success, 20 to 30 million over four years. What's that? Somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 5 million a year. Yep. Glad to see them out of the way. Yeah. Gl glad to see at least one actor taken down. Now, now, David, you always like telling us about another hacker forum that has something that has happened. So tell us what's happening with breach forums. Mr. Fitzpatrick, who was from Peekskill, New York, not too far, has pleaded guilty to the charges of hacking and child pornography possession. So he apparently has been, as a few articles describe it, a thorn in the FBI side for a few years. He actually exploited a weakness in one of their email gateways at one point. I guess it's nice to have another bad actor out of the way. Devere, I don't know if there's any more that you can share 
about any of that activity and how bad Breach Forums was as a marketplace. Yeah, so it's funny that you mentioned it because last time that in our last episode, we talked about Breach Forum and of course, uh, all the other forms and marketplaces that threat actors and skaters used to, to work with. From Purin, as a threat actor, I'm quite happy personally that he's out of the way and the FBI was able to actually press charges against him. He's quite infamous for his activities and of course, in bridge forms. And yeah. And that's not the only good news. I think something that just dropped, David, only what, a few minutes ago that we just put into the show has to deal with Microsoft expanding access to logs, free the logs, right? So over the coming months, it looks like most or more licensed tiers from Microsoft will have access to additional security logs, like the ones that might've been needed to determine if you were impacted by Storm. Yeah. And we'll talk about Storm in a second, but that's prompting Microsoft to make some of the forensics and some of the investigations a little bit easier for folks that don't have some of the higher cost licensing as well, which it's nice to see the freeing of the logs, as you put it there, Matt. I know everybody is eager to jump on the highway to the danger zone and see what's catching the world by storm. I just love saying it. David DeVere, what's going on with this storm 0558 thing other than Microsoft's allowing you to get some more logs? Yeah, it sounds like there was a pretty scary vulnerability with some token signing that allowed a pretty scary actor to get access to some pretty scary information on a lot of folks' emails. Devere, what can you tell us about that? So it goes like this. Every vendor has their own designation for a threat group. Uh, it could be an animal with specific ADR vendor, and it could be as related to any other nickname storm related in Microsoft. And that was a new change that Microsoft presented in a few weeks ago. With regards to Storm 558, I guess everybody's familiar with the name APT31. Is that right? Have you, you all heard I've about that? I've certainly so, heard of that one before. Yeah, Devere. Yeah. So APT31 is a Chinese uh, thread group operating as a espionage type of thread group from China that its main goals and activities are to gain intelligence from any sort of email accounts with all sorts of the same old methodologies such as phishing campaigns and whatnot. The fact is that Storm 558 is a bit different from APT31 is due to the methodologies introduced in this campaign that Microsoft has observed that allowed, unbeknownly to Microsoft, this thread group to gain access to organizations throughout the world, 25 organizations in that specific number, and to individual mail accounts in order to gain access to full email conversations, attachments, and whatnot. The way that they've done so is by using this magical key, as we call it, it's called MSA. MSA stands for Microsoft Account Signing. That is unclear how they got it, but they were able to communicate with certain endpoints, which we're going to click on for the next slide. Yeah, I got um, you, Devere. Thank you. So they were able to use a very unique and never seen before dormant key in order to communicate with certain endpoints for OWA, which is Exchange On-Prem, Outlook.com for everything related to individual mail accounts, and Exchange Online for any other email accounts in organizations. And by using this specific magical key, MSA key, they were able to generate their own server signed tokens in order to communicate with endpoints and to say, hey, we're authenticated, we are the account holders, let us in. 
And in that sense, they were able to use two specific scripts in Python and PowerShell in order to download and exfiltrate data from these specific accounts. From what we were able to understand, the targeted populations are still the same geopolitical disputed areas such as Taiwan, Tibet, and everything related to the Oigos when it comes to individuals. And when it comes to the 25 organizations, some speculate that it's related to US government or any other US European type of organization throughout the world in order to gain this sort of intelligence as part of their espionage campaigns from their emails. Now, Devere, uh, if I could just ask you really quick. Sure. You're talking about how they got the ability to create legitimate tokens or they got the ability to create a legitimate token and the, or maybe an illegitimate token, but due to this vulnerability, that illegitimate token was accepted as valid. Am I getting that right? That's correct. When we attempt to use these endpoints, we use specific generated tokens by our authentication service. We present credentials and we're allowed in. They were coming with specific higher privileged dormant keys that were not potentially seen before and even were not even allowed to be used in that sense, which triggered a lot of bells and whistles from Microsoft sites by their detections as they were not supposed to be used in that sense. So we're talking about two, two main issues over here. Again, they used unknown source keys that were dormant, and these keys were not revocated and invalidated in that sense. So that's the first vulnerability that they were using. And the second vulnerability is that they were continually renewing the tickets and sorry, the tokens in that sense, by communicating with these endpoints, they were able to continue and maintain foothold and continue to generate tokens. So there are two vulnerabilities mentioned over here by the threat actors. But I think the main pain point in that sense is that these keys were not maintained enough. And again, by using keys, uh, domain keys that were not supposed to be used, they were able to do this havoc. We can understand from everything going on that they had bigger plans in mind and they were stopped right after they hit these 25 organizations and personal accounts. And the moment that Microsoft found out about it, they completely blocked and invalidated the keys and completely locked them out, which made them very angry because again, they had bigger plans. It's unknown what's going on in that sense. What are the different methodologies that they will divert to and use in that sense? But again, based on their methodologies in the past, they will stick to emails, mainly email compromise, phishing campaigns, and whatnot. So quite the sophisticated vector to go after data, right? Ultimately, this is to go after exchange data. And I'm sure like in the past with this APT group to move and gain access to additional systems and additional credentials and maintain persistence. But what a novel way to get to data. And I guess the time to the good news and one that if you needed at the time, at least some pretty sophisticated logging from Microsoft to be able to pick up on. Yeah, I think it's both good that sophisticated logging is going to be more available to folks. It's also good that this vector was blown, right? Because who knows how long that could have gone on? Who knows how long it, it did go on? If I'm understanding correctly, it's not like this is an MFA. This takes place after an MFA bypass stuff, right? Once you have the token, you're yeah. in. And there's no sign as an end user as somebody of the email other than, did I read that email? Why is it marked as unread? There's no way you'd really notice, right? True. Yeah. And yeah we so... always like to say that these cookies go straight to your SaaS. This is another one of those scenarios. Exactly. So someone said, as another metaphor, it's like stealing a password making machine. You just continue making more passwords. 
they were able to just communicate with these endpoints without the need for MFA, without any sort of need and to enter credentials. And is it okay with you guys if we move it to the next thing in the danger zone? I see what you did there. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I know that this vulnerability in this techno move it, it's really made the rounds. It's caused a lot of pain for organizations, but I still can't get the song out of my head. So let's move it to our updated section on move it. And David, it's been what, like a, maybe a month or six weeks now since the world has known about and had mitigations available for move it. Am I getting that right? Yeah, it's been a while. I hope everybody here has already patched it if they use it, but apparently not everyone has, right? Yeah. And, and it seems every week, even we at Verums, we're called on by organizations in order to help them investigate this. Since our last update, our last episode, at least nine more victims have been added to their dark web log. And the total number of impacted organizations is uh, well over 200, including notables like CompuCom, Vitisco, Sierra Wireless. And I just want to really, I want to reiterate what David says and what we often say. When you think about these supply chain style or Russian doll style attacks, like the one on the move it file transfer service executed in this case by Clop ransomware group, where they're going after to try to steal data from both the businesses that use move it and the people who they consume move it is in their, their clients that they actually transfer files between. It's not abundantly clear to you that you should like patch actively exploited vulnerabilities on file transfer applications in your DMZ. David and I are here to remind you that you should patch actively exploited vulnerabilities on all of your servers, but definitely on the ones accessible by the internet. David or Devir, any other tips here? Well, and those that contain sensitive data belonging to both you and customers, right? This is a one-stop shop attack and you get access to this vulnerability. You don't need to do much lateral movement. You don't need to penetrate further. The data's there. And usually the data you're sharing with your clients or going back, it's probably the good stuff, right? It's not the outdated forms that sit on the servers in the stale sections. It's like the actively collaborated data. It's a high value target. Yeah. So again, this attack is heavily automated and threat actors are able to gain tons of information from it. Yeah. Now, that this is not the only thing that we have to talk about, though. There's a few more vulnerable vulnerabilities that we want to talk to our audience about. First and foremost, the TrueBot team has struck again, this time targeting a security layer, this NetRix auditor, the CISA, FBI, and other sources of cyber truth have issued a joint advisory highlighting the urgency of patching this remote code execution flaw in network software. Uh, the vulnerability CVE-2022-31199 would actually ultimately allow for total active directory compromise following the initial remote code or RCE exploitation of that vulnerability in the network software. Attackers, they're going to leverage this to break into organizations and exfiltrate data. And I'm constantly reminded by things like this, that the means are always changing, but the end is the same. In each one of these attacks, the attackers are going after data, even if we go back to the financial crime one at the beginning, it was data on the ATM network to then subsequently commit financial fraud. It was this information that unlocked the power for the attackers. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about this was similar to move it. This is a object deserialization vulnerability. And so th it seems like th this is really making the waves. And, and if you any thoughts on if actors, once they started to see object deserialization become a thing, they're just going out and testing everything they can for those kinds of vulnerabilities. Object deserialization is not an easy method to attempt. You need to understand exactly what's the type of payload that you're able to inject and that will be passed. 
of course, we've seen it with Movit and also according to David's uh, question from earlier, also in log4j. So once there is a vector, it is possible to use deserialization. But again, there are plenty of tools that allow pen testers and of course, threat actors and bad guys to attempt and create these payloads. And it is what it is. We will see once an application is vulnerable to deserialization, it's possible to generate these sort of payloads. And as always, best practices, apply patches, limit the use of RDP. Yeah, limit the use of RDP. Audit the systems where you have to use RDP, leverage multi-factor authentication, things like monitoring of your critical resources and your... David, I know you're probably just about to add something there. Yeah, just also prioritizing the stuff that's running on your domain controller as a high-privileged account. Obviously, that's a pretty big vulnerability there, running on your domain controller with high privileges. It's yeah, or even vulnerability just, you know, away to your whole domain gone. Yeah, sitting in memory on your DC is about yeah. as good. I mean, is there a more juicy target for lateral movement than being able to get in memory on a domain controller? So, of course, file servers and everything related to where the agent of the AD sync service is located. So, again... Organization compromise is like the holy grail of every attacker there is, but it's not just that, it's to maintain persistency and to have this secret backdoor that, that they will be able to gain access to. So again, this is file servers, AID service accounts where they reside with the agent and this is what it is. Now, we, you know, everybody likes to debate about the sort of dangers of AI. We even did a webinar on that hosted by Verona security architect, Tom, over in the UK. But there's some, something's going on in the AI world. Dave, you want to talk to us about Worm GPT? Yeah, I think it's our fears of AI are starting to be realized. It, it seems like ChatGPT and BARD are putting in some protections so that you can't use those kind of AI superpowers for evil, although people are having some jailbreaks and finding some ways around those. But this is kind of a black hat AI, right? You can use this to generate malware and worms, and uh, there's no guardrails, no protections. This is the evil supervillain, it looks like, to ChatGPT, and uh, I think it may make the game of malware creation and uh, phishing email creation that much easier. Yeah, they didn't like program into ChatGPT to put some spelling errors into those phishing emails, which might have been a good use of security know-how. Now, just before we cover a few more vulnerabilities, there's two, I think, really good questions that have came in. And Devere, I want to throw one at you, which is, can you elaborate a bit on what a domain controller elevated account means? I think some of our audience members, I bet be as deep in AD as the host. Cool. So again, this is is the old equal and... Almost every service that runs on the DC is running either as a service or as a local admin or as a domain admin. But an elevated account is the potential higher privileged account that threat actors are looking to pivot on to try and jump from the low privilege account to the higher privilege account. And that could be either by jumping between processes or using any sort of local privilege escalation exploits to gain the upper hand and to gain higher privileges. And, and that's if the service wasn't running already as an administrator, which some organizations don't True. put least privileged accounts to run their security stack. Exactly. So potentially if I'm a domain admin and I'm running all sorts of services interactively on my account and I just click on close on the RDP instead of disconnect, potentially someone is able, once they have access to that machine, are able to jump and steal the token of that elevated account because that process is still there. 
and to jump and hijack it to yeah. get, gain high privileges. And our follow, a follow-up question, and thanks, Justin, for that. What should we do to protect against that? Service accounts, absolutely. Making sure that you disconnect also disconnect RDPs. Never run anything as a privileged user and account. Maintain detections and logging and check exactly who's doing what. Of course, everything related to EDR and agents to maintain activities of suspicious processes or any sort of memory hijack attacks, either process following or any sort of Hellgates attack. And it's, the list keeps on going. At the end, you and I would just say, yeah, even supplement these exploit type detections with abnormal behavior type detections to That's identify correct. the downstream actions. The list goes on and on. But just to start with the simplest, the first thing you said, and I think the most practical for people to take even near immediate steps on, if you're running that service as an admin, switch it to a service account, make sure it's not used anywhere else. If that service account is an admin, lower its privileges. Maybe you only need to have administrator credentials to install it, and you don't actually need administrative privileges to run the service after it's installed. These are things that you should look through when, whenever you're putting anything on your domain control, really any server. But I know everybody's usually stretched for time. So at the bare minimum, take this high level of scrutiny on your domain controllers. And David, I'm sure you want to have something to add here, which is uh, go ahead, David. Sorry. Yeah, just one other thing. If you're running this service, it is exploited. As far as I understand it, you have to connect to TCP port 9004 in order to run the exploit and blocking traffic to your domain controller that you don't expect, right? You can do some segmentation there to at least protect against some of this stuff. Probably not a terrible idea. Yeah. And yep. another question came in from Craig, just really quick, guys. When we say the Microsoft compromised emails were read or accessed, would it really have been marked as read so that an end user could question it? This is a great question. So what we've seen on this is sometimes the attackers are syncing the mailbox and then obviously looking through the messages either on a device that doesn't have that sync back or is not. However, we didn't get to investigate every single one of those. So hard to know if they ever triggered a read event or not, Devere, unless you've got more data on that. As you just mentioned, sometimes they're able to sync it. Sometimes they're able to create that API call that flags that message as read. Sometimes they just attempt to hide it and check it as unread, but still the API calls are still there. Or so even authorize an app using that token that doesn't change the status of the message, uh, some sort of Azure connected application, right? So it really depends on the MO of the attacker. With Storm, I think that it's pretty unlikely that they would do anything that an end user would notice. If they hadn't synced and read a message and forget to mark it as unread, but they'd have to be getting pretty sloppy in order to yeah. do that. I don't think that's a high likelihood at all. Most probably the end user would see nothing. Now, I didn't want to forget, Devir, you wanted us to mention a few more vulnerabilities before we wrap it out here. I guess a lot of different organizations use Fortinet and SonicWall, but Fortinet for the last year had new vulnerabilities and new bulletins regarding all sorts of nasty potential attacks, ranging from RCs, from SSL VPNs, creating new admin accounts on the appliance itself, completely taking over on the firewall, and the list keeps on going. In that sense, you need to make sure that all of your appliances always upgraded to the latest, specifically with Fortinet. It's not because, of course, they are not sloppy, it's because they are targeted. They are continuously targeted in that sense of exposed vulnerabilities in the software. When it comes to SonicWall, CIS advised several times to throughout the year that 
Sonic Wall, again, could be attacked using all sorts of exploits. And I think the main thing that you remember right now about these two vendors and appliances is that there are vulnerabilities, but it's not necessarily means that there are exploits available. Specifically in the Fortinet case, there are no POCs as of now for the latest vulnerability that came out. But what if advice is always to keep it updated at all times? If it means downtime, then of course it needs to be planned out, but it is what it is. And um, let's check on, let's see if we've got anything else that's coming inside of the Q&A here. And we'll give that just another couple of minutes. And while we do, first, I wanted to thank David, our co-host, and Devir, who I guess we're going to co-host now. You've been on the show three times, so hopefully you'll join us again. And then obviously our audience, right? The show is made possible by you. We did have somebody uh, want to hear a little bit about Jump Cloud. Should we talk a little bit about that? I don't mind sticking around and talking a little bit about Jump Cloud. I just messaged our CMO, Rob, about that just yesterday. So this is an IT service provider hit by what they're saying is an APT actor. I don't think they've named the APT actor, but they operate different, which, you know, is this posturing? Is it the real thing? It's hard to say. They provide, I think, web hosting services. Am I getting that if you're like the um, backend servers for web hosting services? It's more about, for example, asset management for Mac OS devices and whatnot. It's another mean to maintain control on these sort of machines. And of course, someone mentioned authentication brokering. Maybe we're going to have to have even have another episode on this. It sounds like if there's if there's enough to talk about, go ahead, Devir. True. So they released a very generic statement that they were able to take the necessary steps in order to maintain the attack. And they switched around all of the keys and tokens and they rebuilt the infrastructure from scratch. So it's quite interesting to understand exactly based on their activities and based on this generic testament of what they've done, what was the impact. And since they didn't release any sort of we do, they did release IOCs, but they didn't release any specific information about the attack itself. I guess time will tell. They did. It, it does look like they rotated credentials. It looked like there was some spear phishing. And if I'm re- reading it correctly, it looked like if they got some of those credentials, they'd be able to connect into the infrastructure that they help to facilitate. It's a little bit like a supply chain attack in that I way. I was going to say, if they're yeah. an authentication broker, this is like a yeah. mixture between move it and storm in the sense that maybe they're forging keys because they didn't make a statement about whether or not customers were impacted, right? That's correct. So they did release the IOCs. So that's making me feel like a bit, to be honest, a bit nervous about it. That it means that customers should look for these IOCs. They don't know exactly. But since the attack started on June 22nd as a spear phishing and all the way stretched to that injection on July 5th, some speculate that they do mention customer network through the jump cloud agent. Therefore, it's an absolute supply chain attack. And as you guys mentioned, and it does feel like something is still going on and they're still in the cleanup process to make sure that that those are out of the network and to understand exactly the impact. It sounds like that they're asking people to look for traffic to nomadpackage.com and nomadpackages.com with a couple of variations there, which is, I guess, where they have their orchestrator code or where you can download malicious orchestrator code. Isn't that what that would be? Or the, pe- the malicious package that potentially yeah. got compiled and so, delivered through the supply chain. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. Go. Exactly. So potentially once threat actors are inside and control their infrastructure and they are able to muddy the water or just inject their code to poison the well and to inject their code to the development lifecycle process and to affect the code, potentially it might 
affect back the customers based on agent updates and whatnot. It seems like as updates come out, and I know our marketing hosts are probably super anxious to release our next episode and tell our audience about it, send them an email about it. Stay tuned. Once we have enough to say, we'll definitely have one and maybe it will be on Jump Cloud. And I think we'll have to also, because a few people have asked a lot of questions about Active Directory security today, maybe in the, is there any good news segment next time, David, we can put together some good tips on securing AD and hardening AD amidst all these supply chain vulnerabilities that seem to go after and use Active Directory as a part of that exploit. What do you guys think about that? Devere, I know this is a hot topic for you. You've found vulnerabilities in AD yourself, haven't you? I manage the team that is in charge of actually doing that. But so yeah, humble, that, Devere. But yeah, it's just a hot topic to me. Yes. Sure. It sounds like we got enough for our next episode and stay tuned. You'll get an email update for us when we're ready to go live. As always, thank you to everybody for tuning in. That's it for another episode of State of Cybercrime. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Everybody. Everybody.